This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Bring Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Bring Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We're in episode of the podcast 183 with Bobby Cross of Cross Strain Brewing in La Vista, Nebraska, just on the outskirts of Omaha. Welcome to the podcast, Bobby. Hey, thanks for letting me be here. Of course, of course. Well, you know, you caught me by surprise back in 2018 because we were watching the inaugural uh, uh, Juicy Hazy IPA category uh, announcement for JBF. And all of us who had kind of, uh, you know, wanted to see this category happen were wondering, like, how in this first year of this new category is this going to reflect and how are the judges going to choose? And then, of course, you guys came away with a silver medal for Fairy Nectar and it put you on our radar. And we started paying attention. And one of my beer trader friends grabbed the bottle of Fairy Nectar and, like, oh, okay. Um, you know, and so that was our entree. And then, uh, you know, you all started sending us some beer, I think, last year. And then, of course, in our Saison and Hard Seltzer issue, our April-May issue of Craft Beer and Brewing, your Saison 625 just floored our judges and scored an incredible 99. And that was this point where, like, hey, these guys are not just an IPA factory. They're making some really uh, interesting beer across the spectrum. And, of course, we've been tasting some of your uh, uh, Hellas Creek Hellas for a new lager issue that you sent over our way. Um, cannot wait to talk to you about everything from IPA to mixed fermentation beers and maybe even a little bit of lager on the way. We'll see where the conversation goes. Um, and I love that we can wrap all of those things into one conversation. Um, it's going to be fun. Before we do that, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. GND's micro channel condensers are built with all aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer brazed connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GND Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. Raw North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread supported by flavors and aromas of hay and a nutty character. It's suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let Raw North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So, Bobby, as we normally start the podcast, um, tell me about your background in brewing. You know, what brought what brought you to the world of craft beer and brewing and then, uh, you know, what that professional kind of career arc looked like before you launched Cross Strain Brewing with uh, with your partner, Scott. Sure. So uh, just like any most uh, professional brewers, we all start with a uh, little homebrew kit. Uh, I got one back in about 2006 for my birthday. Uh, I just wanted to try it, you know, do something, do something different. Uh, my background is engineering. So, you know, I kind of like the whole aspect behind brewing and, you know, producing something, you know, from nothing. So I, I started there, uh, I was about three partial mash kits in, and then I was like the hell with it. I'm going to go all grain. So basically I bought a welder, uh, learned all the electrical, built my whole system, built a 20 gallon system. Um, just started going in two to three times a week brewing. Three um, batches just, in and you, you hand built with your own welding, uh, you built your own 20 gallon brew system. Yep. That's yep, a little hardcore. Yeah. No, I just love, I love doing that type of stuff. Just making stuff from, from scratch. Um, kind of why, why I love brewing. But, uh, so I did that for a long time. Um, and then one day I was like talking to the wife and, you know, I was like, I, I kind of want to do this professionally, you know, trying to convince her going from a, you know, a high paying job to a job you're not going to make, you know much money at is, is a little tough, but, uh, she gave me the uh, go ahead on that. And 2013, it's when I started uh, my professional career at a, uh, a local brewery in La Vista. And, uh, that's where I met Scott Strain. So me and him were both production brewers, uh, at this brewery there. Um, liked the same beer, you know, had kind of the same like style of brewing and everything. And, uh, over a bunch of beers, you know, just like, just like anything, we, uh, 
started talking about opening our own place. Um, you know, cause, cause when you're at another place, you're kind of always brewing their recipes and everything. And, and you just not, you don't get to kind of do your own thing. So we always talked about it and, uh, you know, I'm not one to jump off the ship and, you know, try something different, but he convinced me and, you know, he convinced the wives there. And, you know, from there, we, 2015, we quit. Uh, we started with our uh, business plan. Uh, it took about two years of business plan, a lot of brewing, a lot of uh, meeting with investors and, you know, convincing the bank to give us, give us some money, give us some money from our, you know, for our brewery in Omaha, which is, you know, that was, we had to go through a couple banks on that one because they just didn't believe beer was, you know, a thing or going to be a thing in, in Nebraska. So finally, we convinced oh, man. everybody. Pe- people drink beer <laughs> everywhere. Why, why would Nebraska be any different? <laughs> so it convinced everybody there, uh, uh, business partners, and finally opened our brewery in June of 2017 and started out with a 20-barrel brew system, you know, three, or I'm sorry, five 30-barrel fermenters, uh, 150 barrels of production and now we're we're close to a thousand so it's uh it's been a whirlwind in in almost four years so yeah so you you launched in 2017 and then fall of 2018 this fairy nectar london uh you know ale version of this uh you know hazy ipa that you make wins a silver medal at gabf um you know what 12 months 18 months into you know uh, professional operation how did that experience change the trajectory of the brewery? <laughs> I don't think I've ever screamed so loud before. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, uh, you know, we were just, you know, taking a shot, you know, which yeah, is our double dry hot version of fairy nectar, um, which, you know, I did a regular fairy nectar version of that. And then I had a little, I, we have two little five barrel fermenters where it's kind of just my experimental uh, guys. So I was just like, the hell with that. I'm going to dry, double dry hot this one. And then from there, it just, you know, everybody freaked out about it. So we're like, let's, let's just enter this in. You know, it's a double dry hot version. Uh, it's a little more hot punch, um, a lot more fruit. So we just decided to throw it in and, you know, um, we didn't win anything that day. And of course, you know, IPA is the last category to go because it had what, almost 400 uh, entries. So sure. our, uh, our hopes were very low. I love how you said almost 400 entries. I know you know how many entries were in there. (laughs) Yeah. And I, other beers that day, I thought we were going to, I mean, we had a, I thought we had a better chance of winning, but, uh, so, you know, we just kind of sat there and we're like, okay, we're, we're going to go back up and drink after this. And, um, they came, the first place went, or I'm sorry, bronze went and then second place came and, uh, they said fairy. And I jumped, I just jumped out of my seat and just freaked out. Like before they even said anything else and everybody was kind of looking at me and then all of a sudden it clicked for everybody else in our group and, you know, we freaked out. And, but, uh, yes, yeah, it was, it was a great time. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely changed us. Uh, double dry hop is still, you know, a staple to this day and everybody, you know, that comes in, that's usually their favorite beer by far. So it's, uh, regular fairy nectar is probably 60% of our production. Uh, so it's, it definitely, uh, consumes a lot of our fermenters. But uh, double dry hop, it's we kind of want to keep it scarce, you know, produce it, you know, every couple months. So it's just not always, you know, overloaded in the market. So, you know, people come in to buy it, you know, when we when we do do it. So, yeah, it has to change, though, the way that, um, you know, even your existing customers, potentially, you know, new customers in the market and even everyone from local media to peer brewers, you know, and, and how they look at you all. Um, you know, tell me about a little bit about that experience piece of it. So, uh, just how they look at that beer, how they look to you as, as a brewery after that kind of, uh, experience, <laughs> they didn't ex- expect it, you know, a, a brewery from Omaha and just, you know, just coming out of the gates swinging, like you said, that after 18 months of, you know, just only being open, didn't expect, uh, didn't expect us to win, but I mean, the Midwest pulled it in that year. I mean, it was two from Chicago and, you know, us, so. Uh, we had some good, good beers going, but you that's know, right. That was the alarmists year too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I talked, I talked to Gary Gully on the podcast last year at one point, uh, same kind of thing. Um, and just kind of remarkable how that made, you know, everybody in their local market look at them differently and just shot up demand. Of course, you mm-hmm. know, now every beer bar <laughs> needed to have it on tap, <laughs> you know, consumers, you know, take away just, you know, completely increase. It's just an interesting thing to see that that kind of validation from, you know, something like the great American beer festival, you know, can be so 
um, materially beneficial, uh, depending on the category. Certainly, IPA is a great category to win something, and you know, Rauk beer may not drive the same kind of commercial <laughs> demand, you know, for uh, <laughs> for that I, beer across I, I, the market. Yeah. No, uh, uh, it definitely from a consumer standpoint, it's it made us, you know, a New England brewery, you know, at that point. So now we have, you know, f- you know, five to six new- different New Englands on on tap at all times. So it's it put us in it kind of puts you into a category. So that's, uh, you know, that's it kind of overshadows some of our other beers that we have on tap uh, when people come in. But, you know, it's it's a good thing. I love hoppy beers. I love IPAs. So uh, it's a win win for me. For sure, there's that box of expectation that it then creates with consumers. Um, but that's a box that you've been able to kind of play outside of as well and take the kind of commercial volume and success on that hoppy side and, and also use some of your free time to explore other beer styles that are also interesting and compelling to you um, to some great results. Let's talk a little bit about that. I'm um, actually, let's talk about hoppy beers and then we can talk about some mixed fermentation saison. But before we do that, the world of craft beer is a different place now. Margins are more important than ever. So why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are the cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Old Orchard produces high volumes of the retail juice brand, so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program. A little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. To start increasing your margins now, head on over to www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also for years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on BreweryDB.com. In just a few weeks, BreweryDB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of BreweryDB and increase your taproom traffic, set up your account on MarketMyBrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So, Bobby, let's talk a little bit about that kind of genesis of Fairy Nectar. You know, you start a brewery in 2017, you know, get running. Um, hazy IPA in, you know, the middle of the Midwest or upper Midwest, not necessarily going gangbusters, wasn't a huge thing where there was just groundswell of commercial demand for it. Um, but it was also something that you're interested in making and thought you could put a nice, you know, spin on it and make this beer and, and maybe find some consumers that want to, you know, want to drink this. Um, talk to me about that initial inspiration behind it. Um, and how you went about creating a character, you know, for this quote unquote, new England style um, that was relevant to your audience there in Nebraska? Uh, basically, the the recipe behind it, there were so many recipes out there that, you know, where people were doing New England's and you kind of, you're like, how can I, how can I do a spin on this that's going to make it any different from anything that's currently out there? It's just drinking a lot of beer, a lot of New England's. Uh, right. And sometimes seeing- that's, sometimes that spin is just making it fresh and as fresh as possible for your local folks. So they don't have to go trade for it. Um, you know, it, it's not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but especially with this beer style, being able to get it fresh, is such a, you know, compelling thing for consumers. Yeah. Uh, we had, we had a lot of people that brought in a bunch of new England's and we'd try them and figure out what we liked about them. And I just, you know, first off it's mosaic citra, my two favorite hops. Everybody likes to call them cheater hops. I don't care. Uh, you know, you use what's good, right? So it's just, uh, started there, you know, just, just did my regular, you know, 20% weed oat, you know, half and half basically just some pale, um, messed around a lot on the homebrew side on it using different types of sugars, um, different, different amounts of mosaic versus citra in the whirlpool versus dry hop. Um, you just, we, we did a lot of iterations of it and, uh, kind of found out where, uh, going a little more mosaic heavy kind of brought out a lot more fruitiness in that beer, uh, to me. Um, and we just liked it. And, uh, the double dry hop obviously amplified, uh, that up a lot for us. Um, you know, we did different yeasts on it, you know, so experimentation from Conan to London, uh, to London dry. Um, it just came to London, you know, the, the 1318, uh, it's Omega 011 that we use, but, uh, it just, it all just, it, everything just cohesively just worked together, um, and just 
provided this beautiful beer that, you know, we just loved and, and everybody at the tap room just loved too. So, you know, like you said, it was fresh. Um, you could get it there. It's, it's, you don't have to trade for it, you know, which is kind of tough to convince people because, you know, some people say, you know, it, I feel like trading for beer sometimes kind of makes people think it's that much better of a beer, uh, when you can just buy the same thing locally. But, um, you know, it's just, it, it definitely was a good beer and, uh, well, beer. Then you know, after that, of course, beer traders were trading for your beer, getting yeah. it into their <laughs> markets from Nebraska, which is also a cool, weird thing. Let me. I want to you know back up a little bit and talk about some of that you know experimentation. I love that. It's just like oh, we just tried it a few different ways and then it worked out. But you know, clearly the process was more involved with than that. Um, let's talk about yeast for a little while. You mentioned going through a bunch of, you know, uh, working through this with a number of different, uh, you know, styles of yeast. Um, talk to me about some of the, you know, if controlling variables like, uh, you know, grist and hopping while you move through these different yeasts. Um, what were some of the differences that you found, uh, you know, other yeast strains brought to this similar kind of recipe? Sure. Um, so, so some of the, uh, the yeast that we were using, like I said, Conan, uh, London Dry, they uh, they attenuated a little too far for me personally. Um, for the DDH, we uh, we dry we mash at one fifty four, so I want to leave a little bit of residual sugar left in there, and those were kind of fermenting that out and making it a little too dry for me. Um, so it's that's where we kind of landed on the London because it. If what is that ideal? What is yeah? What is that ideal finishing gravity for for these in order? You know, and I know you're trying to highlight that fruit character, and having yeah. that sweetness absolutely does that. Uh, the finishing gravity it was uh, around four point five Play-Doh for for DDH being at one fifty four. So uh, the, the the other ones would would go around in the threes. So that one Play-Doh, I mean, probably to most people would do, doesn't make that much of a difference, but when you drink it a lot. You can tell, like it just adds this little bit of sweetness character that kind of accentuates the hops on top of that. I love that. So the non-double dry hop, the regular version of Fairy Nectar finishes about a Plato lower than the double dry hop version. And that little extra gravity at the end just helps balance out the additional hops load, you know, and everything that that brings. Yep. Yeah. And so, so Conan and London Drive finish, you know, finished too low. Was there an ester component to those that, um, you know, was positive or negative, uh, you know, and, and then how does, uh, you know, do those flavors from the yeast fermentation itself kind of, you know, impact the overall approach to the beer? Yeah, the, uh, they were, they were definitely fruit forward as well. Uh, the London Dry was not as fruit forward as say the Conan was. Um, and also we came to a point where, we just had way too many yeasts in house that we were trying to manage. And it's just, we just needed to jump on one and just ride that one all the way with all our beers. So it's, we liked it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people that like it out there. It's just, it was kind of those aspects that kind of made us turn towards the London and uh, just kind of go with that one for our beer. So sure, it, there was sure. nothing bad about it at all. It was just, um, just kind of from a production standpoint, we wanted to keep our brewery clean and, and not have to worry about other aspects affecting our other beers. So for sure, for sure. So, you know, continuing on this yeast theme, let's talk about using, you know, London L yeast in a, you know, production brewery. Now, obviously, you know, this yeast works different ways in different grists on different kinds of beer, you know, all over the place. Um, it can flock out, it can produce clean beer, uh, or shouldn't say clean, I should say clear beer, you know, um, it can produce clear beer, um, you know, there are certainly some generational uh, aspects to it that you have to manage around, you know, and, you know, and temperature can also have some effect on that. Talk to me about dialing in some of those environmental factors in the fermentation, um, you know, to kind of produce that, that hoppy beer uh, with the kind of expression that you were looking for. Yeah. It's weird that they say that thing flocks out. We haven't, we've, we biofine that thing and that thing will not get drop clear for us at all, even when we try um, but I know they said it's a high flock, but, um, uh, we've definitely haven't had that issue at our place. Uh, we've, we've done many, uh, we've done anywhere from 66 to 70 degrees for that yeast, uh, just to see what, what different fermentation temperatures will, uh, will bring out of it. It's, it's a little lower on the 66 range. So we've kind of bumped it up to 70 degrees now with that yeast. 
uh, to let that thing ferment out. It's ferments out in, you know, five to six days. We let it go seven uh, just to clean up. You know, I, I could push it faster, but I don't. It uh, produces, you know, a great, you know, uh, fruity character. I get, you know, a little bit of mango, but that could also be produced from the whirlpool hops that we put in there. We just, we kill it with mosaic on the whirlpool side. So uh, that's probably actually helping on that aspect as well. But it, uh, it ferments clean. Um, I don't get any, you know, bad esters or, or anything from that beer or from that yeast, sorry. How many generations would, will you typically push it? And, um, you know, are you, I imagine if you're doing a fairly high volume of IPA, you can, you know, just pitch cone to cone and, and keep things running. Uh, or do you, uh, uh, you know, do the expensive uh, approach and buy fresh pitches for each batch? So uh, we actually go up to about 10. Uh, 10. When we, yeah, when we initially started, we went to 25. Um, so I think that might have affected 20, 25 generations yeah. <laughs> on London Ale yeast. Damn. Yeah. Um, so we, we pull everything into a brink. Um, we don't do cone to cone. We have a cellometer. Okay. Um, at our place. So we count the yeast, we check viability, uh, we pitch, uh, we pitch at a, at a one ratio, um, to every cone. And, uh, yeah, it seems like 10 is kind of, it's good. We could probably push it further cause it doesn't seem to be showing us any type of stress or, you know, off flavors at all, but we just kind of, I just want to keep it fresh and I just like doing it at 10. I don't know. It's, it's a, <laughs> It just makes me feel good that we don't have this. We're not pushing it to 25 anymore. So that, uh, that was, that was a little scary when I think about it now. <laughs> that, that sounds insane to me. You know, having talked to brewers who started having issues with yeast dropping out after, you know, five or eight generations and then having to go back to the drawing board. It sounds like whatever strain you've pulled this from is, <laughs> is quite the workhorse in, uh, in the commercial brewery. Well, um, it's, it's funny. Ours actually gets hazier. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it just kind of becomes a cloudy mess after round 10. So, you know, we just bring in another pitch and it kind of gets us back to our like, normal haze that we're used to. That's wild. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned, you know, that you don't really have problems with flock and that haze is, it kind of comes easy. Um, what do you attribute that to? Is that, you know, obviously you, you've, you've got, you know, um, higher protein malts and, uh, you know, oats and wheat in there adding, um, you know, some of that piece of the, of the puzzle, you know, double dry hopping means you're pushing a ton of hops and a lot of hop polyphenols, you know, into that. Um, but making sure that those all don't precipitate out, um, is an, also an important thing because you start overloading a beer like that and, and, uh, then it, you know, it can start dropping itself out just, uh, because you've pushed so much into the beer. Um, you know, are there any strategies that you use to try to keep all of that haze and solution so that, uh, it appears to consumers the way that they expect it to appear. Yeah. I mean, we don't do any different, anything different than probably any normal brewery does. We do the, like I said, 20%, you know, it's half wheat, half, half oats flaked, uh, just the high, higher protein values in those. Uh, we use pale, uh, RAR, which is, um, I think that's around 12% protein. Um, other than that, we just, we do our normal mash 154 mash out, same water boil, uh, just whirlpool the hell out of it and then dry hop it. You know, it's just, it's, we, like I said, we biofine this before. Well, so back in the days, 2017 to probably 2018, we used to biofine this beer. Uh, cause I, I thought it was too hazy and I just, I wanted it to <laughs> right, be somewhat right. a little, a little clearer, less muddled. Um, and then it just, it wouldn't drop out. It'd be a little hazy. Uh, it wouldn't be clear at all, but I was just like, why the hell am I doing this? This is a, it's a new England, you know, everybody's used to the haze now. So I just, I got rid of it and it just, it just seemed like that the mouthfeel on it got better. Cause you know, you have more protein in there, um, in the, in the haze. And it's just from there, it just, it just seemed to get hazier. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, it's just, it's the normal process. It's just, uh, so I know some people do the biotransformation, um, dry hop, which is, you know, when you're, you know, sure. one to two, two Play-Doh prior to, uh, uh, final gravity, we actually don't. So we, uh, we let it go through its whole process. Um, the reason why is because, uh, when we pull yeast to a brink, I don't want it to be full of, you know, hot particulate sure. And, sure. and that bitterness. So I allow it to go through seven days. We drop, we do VDK it, um, drop it to 60. So from 70 to 60 allows it to, 
a lot of that yeast that's in suspension to drop out uh, so we can get a good crop on that crop it the next day and then we uh we dry hop it with our dry hop skid uh we do about three pounds per barrel so it's it's nothing super aggressive but uh it seems anything above that uh it seems to get that grassy character it takes a lot longer for it to to come to you know the beer that we like to put out in the market so it's just that that dry hop you know even though we we crop and drop it prior to you know all that fermentation going on it still uh, provides us a, a great hazy beer yeah that's fantastic let's um since we're now talking about hops let's go back to that hot side what are hot side hops look like uh you know in fairy nectar we just do a whirlpool edition no bittering uh yeah. it's just it's just uh, just a massive amount of mosaic in yeah. the uh, in the whirlpool um how do you calculate the the kind of bitterness uh you know component to that obviously if you've got a beer that's finishing as, you know with at a relative on the sweeter side you know making sure that there's a little bit of bitterness in there helps give it that kind of balance um but if you're not doing typical boil additions and it's just going to the whirlpool obviously the math gets a little bit harder um you know how do you how do you quantify that uh beersmith <laughs> <laughs> no uh i do use beersmith uh, obviously yeah. it's a calculated calculated sure, sure. amount but uh it's we don't drop temperature on it uh we keep it you know right after boil cuts we uh, throw it in the whirlpool uh whirlpool it for about 30 minutes so having it at that close to that boil temperature um it's going to give us rising yeah yeah you're still going to get uh get that bitterness from it it's it's not going to be that aggressive bitterness you know if i was doing it at a 60 minute edition but it's it's still going to give you a bitterness but a more smooth kind of character from that it's not going to be in your face you know tongue scraping bitter so that's why i like the the boil additions not to say that we we do bittering additions on other like double ipas and stuff like that but uh just this one it just seemed to make for a, just a, a lot cleaner, uh, beer for us. Um, about how much, uh, you know, on that kind of whirlpool per barrel of hops are, are going into the beer. I would have to say it's, it's around 11 pounds just wow. in the whirlpool, 11 which pounds. is not, it's, I wouldn't say it's super aggressive cause it's, I mean, that's what a half pound per barrel. <laughs> okay. So 11 pounds into a, a 20 yeah. barrel batch. Okay. Yeah, it gets it gets yeah. bad on when we're when we're moving it to the fermenter because then all that that hop kind of moves towards the true dam and you know we 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 kind of have to cut it off a couple of barrels prior to actually you know getting all of it out so it's anymore it, we just lose a ton of beer so sure 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 um, and so then you know we mentioned in dry hopping that um, seven days in after dropping yeast then you're adding your dry hops three pounds per barrel. Um, you know, do you leave it at 60? Do you raise that temperature back up? Do you drop it back down? What kind of uh, dry hop temperature? And then how long, uh, you know, do you tend to dry hop for? Are you doing okay. it in one so, single, uh, single dry hop charge or are you kind of spreading it out over time? What's, what's that look like? So my, my definition of double dry hop is, is from the original, I'm double, doubling the dry hop. I know, I know some people are like, you know, you have to do it within two days or you have to do one as a bio transfer and then that. Well, it's just, it's, you're doubling the amount of hops. So I, I do them all in one charge. We used to do it two times. So I used to do it the first day and then the second day. Um, now that we got this dry hop cart, I can put all, all the hops in there, Persian with, with CO2, uh, run them in there. And then we actually research for one hour, uh, that first day, uh, we'll keep it at 60 degrees that whole time throughout the whole fermentation. The next day we'll come in, we'll actually CO2, um, burp like rouse the uh from the right. bottom to basically get all those hops back up in suspension uh next day we'll come in we'll taste make sure it's exactly where we need it you know if we need to put in more hops which we we never have have had to do that um, we would at that point but uh we we taste if it's good we rouse and then we drop to 32. Yeah, the double dry hop. We're, let's not get into that conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, anyway, anyway, uh, you know that's a whole nother matter, and we'll we'll leave that for a future day. Um, I think that it's okay that uh, you know the industry as a whole is still trying to kind of figure this out. You know, and that we I, at some point in the future, I think we'll all land on a common terminology for it. But in the meantime, we can keep calling it that. I mean, what what does double dry hop mean other than at this point, it's a great marketing term to convince 
those folks that really like heavily hopped beers, that this is a beer that they're going to like. You know, it, it just becomes a semantic signifier, you know, to consumers who know and are looking for that kind of thing. Um, and it's fascinating the way that, uh, you know, that kind of hazy IPA world has built, you know, and kind of pushed this as a uh, as a marketing term that helps sell beer now. Uh, eventually, it'll get tired and consumers won't respond to it as well. And I'm sure someone will come up with the next big term. <laughs> and we've already seen, you know, cryo or high density hops charge and, uh, you know, all sorts of other other terms kind of enter into the lexicon to, again, try to fill that point. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's it's a marketing term and i think oh, that that's sure. perfectly okay uh i love to you know joke about it like there's no professional chef out there that brags about how much salt they put into a dish <laughs> you know this is something that is somewhat unique you know to to the world of beer in highlighting just how much we put into something um but i think you know at this point we can laugh about it you know maybe at some point in the future we'll embrace the fact that these are just what they are and is the the way that the artist and brewer intended them to be um but in the meantime for the rest of us who live in the real world and actually have to sell beer and sell the things that we make you know we can use those kinds of terms <laughs> but i digress um you know in terms of uh you know that fermentation you know you've dropped out yeast so uh, you know i assume you don't have as big of a deal or an issue with hops creep in that kind of dry hop uh, you know process with the beer no uh with those those hops we have knock on wood have never had the issue with hop creep with those hops uh we have with other hops we've used before um it's you know you finish that for a play-doh like we say i don't know it was some southern hops from uh southern um i think africa and then uh it would drop down to about two play-doh wow know? and it, and we'd see you would come in the next day the uh the pressure on the fermenter was up another you know five psi six psi and we had no clue what was going on and uh just the nice thing with those little smaller batches is we don't put those in cans so we don't uh we didn't have that issue with hop creep but from that standpoint, we haven't had it with, with fairy nectar at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it is a scary thing though. It's, it happens and it'd be yeah. crazy to see that just being in cans on the shelves and knowing that that's going on and yeah. No, no, for sure. It, it is definitely real. Um, let's talk about the mosaic and the, the citra that you use, you know, being a small brewery as you're getting started, you know, selection probably wasn't in the cards. Um, you may still not be, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not familiar with just how much you make and how many pounds of these that you buy. Um, you know, but when it comes to that kind of citra and mosaic, uh, you know, that you use, uh, talk to me about how you, um, how you think about those, how you evaluate those hops when they come in the brewery and, uh, um, you know, the kind of consistency that you see across all of them that you use and how you kind of adjust for any changes within that. Sure. Uh, this year was actually the first year we got to do hop selection, um, which was, which was great. And also the nice thing about it was I didn't have to fly out to Oregon. They just sent them to me <laughs> this year. So, uh, I got, got to, got to do that. Um, Oh, flying out there is the fun part. Buddy. Oh, I uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll do that this year, hopefully. So, yeah, yeah. um, just the nice thing is just with the whole pandemic is just allowed right, me to true. get all my brewers involved too, without having to fly, you know, six, five, six people out there to sure, evaluate sure. these things. But, um, yeah, for, from, so we got Citra Mosaic, we got to, um, evaluate those and they always say to not jump too far from your current lots that you're using. Cause you know, people out in the market are going to drink that beer and be like, what did you change about it? You know, I don't, it's not the same I used to drink, you know, for, for the past three years, but, uh, I felt like what we were getting in the past where we couldn't choose, uh, it was a little more on the duller side. It didn't give me the, the flavors that I was looking for. So in this hop selection, which helped out great is we evaluated to the ones that we wanted, but, uh, or I'm sorry, we evaluated the hops to what we currently had and we didn't like them <laughs> compared to the rest that we had, you know, in front of us, the other ones were really fruity, um, great, uh, mosaic had great mango, uh, papaya, uh, the citra was, you know, it was super bright, uh, just citrus heavy on some of the ones. And from my standpoint, I was like, this is where I wanted to always be with my, 
with my lots uh, for for fairy nectar. I want this to be more vibrant when you open that can. I want I want there to be more uh, fruit notes, uh, just tropical stone fruits. Um, so we kind of went that route on on this new lot. And uh, the unfortunate thing with when you don't select is uh, you're kind of stuck with all the lots that people didn't want. So when you let somebody else like uh, give you hops or you you sign up for a contract and aren't allowed to actually select them, you're kind of thrown into this, you know, this is what you get, you know, good luck working with it, you know, hopefully you make something good out of it. So, so hop selection we found last year was huge. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, to be f- totally fair to, you know, hops brokers and growers, like, oh, yeah. it's, you know, s- some of those lots in spot are coming as leftovers from other selected lots, you know, that are just smaller amounts that, you know, and that they are, there is still quality control that they are. Oh, yeah. they have I'm not throwing place. them under the bus. No, I know. Just <laughs> no, I'm, not make, saying you know I'm not saying everything is crap. It's just, right. it's, it's nice when you get to actually, you know, sit down and, and thoroughly evaluate them, you know, uh, personally and just see like, you know, those, the lot that we had before was great. Um, I, I mean, it obviously made a, you know, a, a silver medal winner at, at GABF. For sure. For sure. It, uh, it just wasn't where I always wanted the beer to be. I, I made the beer work for what I got, but when I was looking at these other lots, it kind of, it allows me to kind of move my beer to, to that point of, you know, future wise. It, you know, and it's something that, uh, I, I also find fascinating that you can, especially with brand new breweries, it's one of the reasons like I try not to visit new breweries in the first year, year and a half of operation because, you know, as you're getting off the ground and, and producing small amounts of beer, um, you know, it's harder to have leverage on ingredient sourcing. And so, you know, naturally things don't quite, you know, it, it becomes harder to find that quality of ingredients that can express you know, what that idea of the beer that you might have in your mind. And so, um, you know, I find most of the time it takes a brewery some time to get to that point where, you know, now they have access to the materials that they want. And, you know, there are a lot of other ways of doing it. Sometimes, you know, it's not just buying spots. Sometimes it's buying from other breweries some excess that they have so that they've selected great stuff, but they have, you know, a hundred, few hundred pounds of, of extra stuff and uh, that they don't need. And you've got a friendship there and you can just, you know, buy from their selected lot. And sometimes small breweries have fantastic, you know, access to uh, some raw materials if they can operate in that kind of way uh, or co-op with other small breweries and build a, you know, larger, uh, you know, uh, volume in order to get to that kind of selection piece, you know, but that becomes a, you know, big struggle that the small breweries face in terms of getting access and, and as tough as it is for small breweries it's infinitely harder for home brewers yeah <laughs> you know buying at that kind of scale um but the good thing is that there's a higher consciousness around it i think from everybody across the industry home brewers professional brewers etc and people are putting a um they're paying much much more attention to that and i think that uh, you know hops growers and brokers are also trying to answer that call to make sure that um, the expectation of quality is out there and that, you know, the whole chain of, of uh, care for these hops is, is being done correctly so that, you know, from packaging for homebrewers, you know, I remember, man, back in the day, it was, uh, you know, buy a, a larger commercial bag and then sit in the back of the homebrew shop and split it up into, you know, and then vacuum seal it again, but, you know, all open air and, you know, the, the approach that we had towards quality then is different than the approach that we have now, you know, uh, a decade later looking at the same kind of thing. And I think that that's fantastic for all of us across the brewing spectrum. I, I definitely want to talk uh, about Saison and mixed culture beer because obviously that one just blew the socks off of our blind review panel. So let's kind of pivot and talk about that for a little bit. But first, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry with a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing. SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, when it comes to brewing, nobody has your back like Clarion because their food grade lubricants are formulated to help make your brewing system 100% food safe. That means when you switch to Clarion, you can put the costly potential of contamination and recall 
out of your mind. All you need to worry about is brewing great beer. And since you already do that, well, it's more like focusing on business as usual. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So Bobby, talk to me about Saison. Uh, Clearly, this is something you make because you love it, uh, not because there's just a giant commercial demand for it um, right there on the eastern edge of Nebraska. Um, you know, but it's something that you've, uh, you know, I suspect you've been making, you know, uh, from your homebrew years on forward. Um, talk to me about uh, your experience doing that and how you've articulated an idea and approach to, to mixed culture. So the funny part was uh, Scott Strain was actually the Belgian brewer. So he's the one that loved the Belgians, the the Saisons, um, all that side. So he would brew up a lot of those. Um, and he, by by being with him, I, I learned to love, you know, Belgians as well as Saisons and, you know, everything in that realm. Um, yeah, this was kind of, we started our sour program last year and I've always wanted to do a, a in-house Saison uh, with with you know, Britannomyces and everything like a, a true Saison. So I was allowed to do that last year. We, we kind of did it on the homebrew uh, level a lot, uh, kind of tweaking the allowed, recipe. You were allowed to do it? I mean, you're, <laughs> you're co-owner of the brewery. <laughs> I allowed myself to do it, I guess I okay. should say. Um, just, uh, I don't get as I don't get as much time on the pilot system anymore, but when I do, I try for some, some stuff I've been really working on, but yeah, we, we did this. Um, I was just, from the, the, all the beers that we've tasted, we have a bunch of people that love Saison. So we get a lot of, you know, Phantoms, uh, DuPonts, uh, uh, Blagis, like, uh, just drinking a lot of them, you know, you, you're kind of seeing what you like, what you don't like. Uh, and I loved all those beers and just tried to recreate my own by, uh, you know, just looking at Saison, you know, yeast and, you know, what do I want from this? Do I want to, you know, high phenol or esters or, you know, so I kind of, I kind of swayed towards, I kind of like a little fruitiness in mine. I'm not much of a phenol, a huge phenol fan. So it kind of guided me to some yeast and some Britannomyces that would kind of bring out more aspects of fruit uh, character, which this thing is super fruit heavy to me, I think, uh, you know, in the nose and the, in the, in the flavor of it. Uh, do you want me to go into the recipe or anything? Or I would what love I to. I'd did? love to. <laughs> now, you know, so you're now talking about culture. You know what? What was you know that kind of breath strain and and culture that you were uh, drawn towards to kind of bring out that fruity element? Sure. So uh, I actually uh, landed on Wallonian one, and it was a it was a mixture of Wallonian one and Wallonian two from the East Bay. Um, They're both uh, not as prominent on those those phenols and esters and and you know the funk it had. Slight funk, you know, slight esters, you know, fruit heavy on, on the Wallonian too. It minimized the things I didn't like and it kind of maximized the things I did like. So those two together were just made a, a beautiful just base saison. And then I brought in uh, the Amalgamation 2, which is a, it's a super Brett blend. So it's uh, five different Brett blends that uh, from the description uh, definitely lend mango, papaya, pineapple, like all these fruit that would enhance all these fruit, you know, characters that the, that the regular yeast already did. And, you know, you, you're kind of, you're kind of throwing everything into a fermenter and hoping, hoping it's exactly what <laughs> right. you want. And uh, this just by chance turned out exactly how we wanted and, and, and gave us, gave me everything that, you know, I was looking for in this beer, you know, slight funk, little barnyard, uh, which when you try to describe that to people, you know, when they're drinking the beer, you're like, hey, do you get that barnyard or that, you know, that horse blanket? And everybody's just like, what the hell are you talking about? That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't sound good at all. But uh, it's just kind of just everything melded together and, and, and just worked out great. And, you know, we got to. There's this, yeah. yeah, there's this real lightness, you know, to the beer. And I love, you know, that when I'm tasting kind of farmhouse style beers that, um, you know, the acidity is pretty low and under control. It's there, but it's not a defining factor of the beer. Um, you know, that fruit flavor is also, it's present, but light and, uh, you know, has a kind of, and, and that phenolic piece just adds like a crisp edge to the fruit flavor rather than becoming this hardcore peppery note that, uh, you know, kind of stands on its own. It's almost just structuring rather than dominating as its own kind of flavor. And there, you know, but it, it, uh, 
it all tasted very light handed, you know, that, um, that there was a, a kind of beautiful simplicity to it, uh, and a, achieving that, <laughs> nailing it the first time out. Oh, that's, that's relatively <laughs> impressive. Um, I, I guess I can't ask you the question of how you've continued to dial in it and iterate, uh, if it was, uh, you know, a, a first attempt at this kind of thing that, that turned out so good. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely was a, uh, we haven't touched it. Uh, the recipe. This first one I actually did, a, I call it a mock decoction. So we don't have a, a true decoction system. So so what we do on this is we bring in the whole, you know, 100% of the uh, the malt bill, basically run it through its step mashes, you know, the 146, and then we do a 162. And then from there, I transfer 70% of that to the actual lauder ton. Uh, the rest of the 30% is I, I decoct it, I boil it, uh, bring it up to boiled uh, temp, boil it for 20 minutes and then we send that over and basically that'll raise it to mash out. Uh, from there, we just do our regular lauder, you know, transfer boil. So it's a Pilsner base and it's unmalted wheat. Um, it's about a, I think a, uh, 80, 20. So 20, 20% on the unmalted wheat and a crap ton of rice holes. So, uh, uh, start there. I don't put the rice holes in until the lauder cause I don't want the rice holes during the decoction to, to add any, you know, unwanted flavors right. to it. But, um, yeah, the, the, I think the unmalted wheat kind of brings in a little more body character and, and by decocting it, it kind of opens it, allows it to break down more of those, you know, uh, starches into, uh, fermentables for the, uh, for the yeast. But I just think it, it, it adds a character that I think if I went the other route and just did, you know, step mash and, you know, went on my way that it wouldn't add those types of flavors that it did. But yeah, we go through the, it, oh, sorry, we, we go through the boil send it uh it's about 33 ibus i believe it's uh uh steering goldings and send it to the fooder and you know we use our fooder as basically a solera system so i mean it's got all the bread in there all the you know the malonian yeast and right it uh it just does its thing that's a pretty um hefty ibu load for uh you know something that's going into a yeah a mix with lactobacillus to produce a little bit of acidity i can see why it comes out with a pretty delicate kind of acid profile to it. Yep. Yeah, that's what uh, we didn't. I like saisons that have a little tartness to it. Um, it's just we we kind of want to keep that in check. So, you know, lately we've been actually bumping it up to 40 to uh, to make sure it doesn't come through as much. So, um, you know, in terms of steering goldings, how much, you know, contribution do the hops play to, into that overall flavor? And, uh, you know, from your perspective, how does that culture, um, tran uh, transform some of the hops character, uh, in the beer itself? Yeah. So I, uh, I printed off the recipe since I, I haven't looked at it for a <laughs> while. Uh, you did some homework <laughs> for me. Um, so I do a, uh, I do a 10 minute addition and a zero minute of all styrian. So, uh, just those, those light floral characters, I think with the styrian kind of, uh, adds to the, uh, to the fermentation, uh, characters, the esters, little phenols kind of place off those ones for a little bit and do, we do a, uh, another 30 minute whirlpool addition. So, uh, just kind of, it keeps those in there, kind of keeps the oils in check and, and allows those oils to be brought over to the fooder and kind of, you know, Britannomyces kind of. I'm, I'm assuming they, you know, they kind of do their own thing to the, to the hop oils as well, you know, in the fooder and, and creates that, you know, just that lovely character that we like from it. So you, you know, can taste the war going in, you know, before, uh, you know, it hits that kind of culture, you know, how different, you know, how much of a, a transformation happens through that? What would you describe it as going in and, uh, you know, versus how it comes out? Bitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's got the, it's definitely got the, the, the steering golding, the, the floral, the, a little bit of fruitiness, a little bit of noble kind of character I mean, to I mean, it. Cause in mid thirties to 40, you're like Pilsner, you know, bitterness hopping level, which is, you know, rather intense and, and, uh, in a light kind of base like that, it's low ABV. Um, you know, so I can imagine like, you know, but I'm just trying to visualize that kind of change over time and how that culture uh, attacks some of that and how the bitterness then wears down and lets other things uh, kind of come to the forefront. Yeah, it, it it's definitely bitter up front. Um, but the nice thing uh, is we bottle condition these, uh, this beer. So uh, 
we leave it in the fooder for about three to four months, uh, pull it out and bottle condition it. At that point, it's definitely a lot of that bitterness has died off, but it's still pretty prominent. Um, not like it was on the brew day, but um, it's definitely still there. Uh, it's, it's showing itself. It's it's uh, not as aggressive, but once it gets into bottle conditioning and then it, it kind of, it's more of a background note, you know, a uh, year later, you know, six months later, I like to pull them out every month just to try, you know, see how that thing's progressing, you know, what that Brett's doing to the beer. So it's just, yeah, the, the bitterness definitely dies down on it and uh, yeah. <laughs> it does its for the, thing. For the food, right. So for the, for the food itself, you know, over time, um, you know, as you continue to feed it, have, you know, you noticed that culture moving in any uh, particular direction or have you had to kind of steer it or repitch along the way in order to kind of get it back to the kind of balance that you're looking for? Yeah, we actually haven't touched it. Um, we've gone into it twice now. Uh, so it's, it hasn't had much time to, I don't think really delve in one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's still giving us the fruity, the fruity notes. I like the, the low phenols, the, you know, esters, and it still has all the, the great qualities that we had in the initial ones. So we, we haven't had to and touch it yet. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> there's no temp, there's no temp control on that, or, uh, you just kind of leave it at brewery ambient temperature. Yep. It's just ambient temperature. Uh, we have, we have five fooders. Well, we have a sour room, so it's complete opposite. Uh, uh, it's in the next bay, so we wanted to, you know, completely separate our our clean beer from our sour beer. So we got five five fooders from uh, uh, craft fooders, um, horizontals, fooder crafters. Yep, yeah, fooder crafters, and uh, they're horizontals. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, no temperature control. Uh, just figured all those beers in there. We do, you know, Berliner, Goldens, Flanders. Just none of them, you know, are temperature controlled. It's all ambient. And that room stays about sure. 60. So that the Saison might go up to, who knows, 75. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's right. fermenting, but it's it seems to be in a good temperature control. And we haven't had issues with, you know, any off flavors that we've noticed from, from not being temperature controlled. Yeah, yeah. So you even do other sour styles then in addition to this kind of, um, you know, tart Saison. Um, you know, Berliner Weiss and Flanders. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, building this kind of broader thing. I mean, Flanders, who people don't make Flanders in America <laughs> right now. Do people buy Flanders actually, uh, style uh, sour beers around here? They, they actually do. Uh, you know, people, well, in this day and age, you know, nobody, nobody really knows what a sour is because it's like, is it a kettle sour? Is it, you know, a true sour? And, right. you know, it's just... You try to have to true true sour. True sour. I call it a true sour. Now, now we're uh, now we're parsing some some dangerous language uh, right there. Just just delete that one. <laughs> no, uh, it's, no, that's okay. I, I mean, uh, we don't want to get into issues of authenticity and what is or what isn't. Uh, you know, um, but you're right. It's a confusing world for people and. I, you know, I pay attention to the Facebook groups and man, the amount of trolling that goes on some of these sour beer Facebook groups is hilarious between those proponents of traditional, you know, mixed culture sour beers versus the, uh, the new school, you know, kettle sour crowd. Um, you know, it's an intractable battle of, of internet warriors, but, um, you know, but, but nonetheless, you, you know, kind of stay focused on the, the quote unquote traditional mixed culture side of, of sour beer. We do, but we also do kettle sours. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, make just, untru- you make untrue sours. Yeah, also, I'm making fun of myself. <laughs> uh, no, we, uh, Fair enough. I've always been into sours. Um, I just like the aspect behind it, you know, using, you know, different types of bacteria in order to produce something, you know, that's just, it's, you know, made by, you know, these little organisms that, you know, are producing these, you know, amazing flavors and, and everything. So we've been, uh, in the back of my mind, I've always wanted to do this, uh, this sour program. And, um, finally during the pandemic, we, uh, just said, let's go with it. And, you know, just, started this program and I said, you know, I was five fooders. I want five different, you know, base beers. Um, so we can do the whole gambit, you know, people come in, they can try, you know, if they've never had a Oud Bruin, you know, never had a Flanders Berliner, we can fruit the Berliner, um, cause people like their fruited stuff and, you know, just different, different beers to kind of 
you know, see what people like. Cause not, you know, like you said, not there, ha- there's not a lot of people in, in Nebraska area that have had many of these beers. So it's kind of, we're, we're kind of, you know, bringing them to them and, you know, allowing them to see which, which styles they like and, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, that that's a, it's nice to do a bit of that evangelism, you know, to, uh, and also to, you know, there's, there's so many misconceptions and, or sorry, preconceptions, you know, about quote unquote sour beer that I think I'll start with the way that we describe them as sour beer, rather than looking at, uh, you know, the kind of overall flavor and gestalt of these things that is obviously always more than just sour. You know, we don't call Berliner Weisses a bright lemony wheat ale, you know, even though lemony would pretty much describe that kind of flavor and also describe the level of tartness that's in those beers. Instead, we call them sour and it makes, you know, brings on this idea of something that's completely different. Um, you know, but talk to me a little bit about making these styles of mixed culture, you know, based beers that, um, you know, have some broad appeal, you know, making, um, you know, pushing too much acetic in your Flanders or, uh, you know, pushing too much, uh, too low of a pH in a Berliner Weiss could make that, um, you know, kind of polarizing. And if your goal is to reach people where they are now and make something that's compelling for them, I imagine that there's some strategy in, in how you're going about doing that. Yeah, there's definitely a, a lot of blending going on when you get, you get some of those beers that are just tongue scraping or, you know, teeth scraping acid. Uh, it allows you to kind of bring in other aspects to kind of accentuate that, that acidity, but also, you know, bring in other aspects of the other beer that are going to kind of bring that to a kind of middle ground for people. So, uh, it just allows it to be the beer that you want. Um, just a lot of fruit, um, Berliners. We do like, we do, we do the straight styles cause we want people to also taste them straight, you know, see, see what they're like, like the initial right. beer. And then, uh, like Berliners will fruit a lot of those, um, barrel, we barrel age pretty much everything, uh, allow it to sit in there, kind of get some of those nuances of the barrels and, uh, then kind of, you know, bring, bring some of them into the fruit. And then obviously like your, your Flanders, uh, those are tough, like acetic character wise. Cause it's just like, how much oxygen can get in there? Like what's going to create that acetic? Like, is it going to be in balance where you want it? Um, those are, those are tough beers and it's, it's, it's hard to, to get those to come to, to where you want it. So it's just, you, you got to wait years on them. And because, you know, right now we have a bunch that we just put in and, uh, into barrels and it, it, it's really, it's, it's a sweet beer. So it's like, I probably have to wait another, you know, two years on those to get the acidity, the acetic. Um, so it's a lot of money just sitting in barrels. <laughs> <laughs> well, sounds like a, a good project to start in the yeah. middle of a, of the pandemic when you have some extra time to, to brew some batches that can just sit there for a little bit, of, a little while. Um, well, we'll have to come back and talk in a couple of years mm-hmm. when, uh, when some of those kind of hit their, their full on stride. Um, in the the uh, you know kind of broader picture for uh, you know cross strain as a brewery as a whole, um, what's uh, what's this big picture look like for you? Um, what are you striving towards, and and uh, what does success look like you know for cross strain? Um, how will you guys know when you get there? Um, right now, uh, I'd say we're doing pretty good. We uh, we've been very lucky. Uh, we got uh, we're opening up a. Uh, uh, a tap room downtown. So, uh, we're, we're expanding in that, that realm. Um, I don't know. I just, I'm looking forward to the future. I'm looking forward to our sour program, uh, our other barrel program with, with some of our, uh, you know, our, our stouts and, and barley wines and just, uh, hopefully we can, we can keep growing. You know, that's all I can. Stouts and barley wines, man. You're, you're gonna, you're hitting all of the <laughs> hipster notes here too. <laughs> Yeah, luckily we uh, yeah. we uh, 2019 within the first year we entered Fobab, we won a uh, the bronze for uh, the barley wine category. So it was a good it was a good year. <laughs> so you now you're making barrel aged barley wines, another style that nobody buys. <laughs> um. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're all, hitting all we're hitting hits. all the notes for uh, for beers people don't buy. <laughs> 
Well, I appreciate though that um, you know if you you have these ideas and you want to you know, kind of pursue those ideas and uh, and see what kind of beers they make, even if they're not necessarily the things that are going to jump off the shelves in the the largest kinds of numbers. But the, you know that kind of focus on the craft is, I think, where where all of us should be. That balance between making the things that people want to buy, you know, things hoppy beers and that we also that that you know brewers also love to make you know hoppy beers but in balancing those kinds of you know big consumer hits with uh you know the the kinds of labors of love and uh, when we see breweries that do both of those things um you know it uh and it also kind of explains though that kind of love of, of the very craft itself and so from that standpoint i think it's cool and healthy <laughs> to see that uh, sometimes you do things i mean we do that as you know as our business like not every product is wildly profitable sometimes you do things just because you love to do it and because that piece of it matters to you as a creative person and uh you know and i think that if we ever got into a business where we were all too cynical to you know engage in that kind of thing then uh, we should just pack it up and call it a day uh yeah <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I get, I, it's, it's, it's nice to, to brew beer that, beer that people, you know, buy and want, but it's also nice to, you know, make your own beers and, and try something new and, you know, get back to that home brewing realm when you, you know, make these weird things that, you know, maybe people are kind of standoffish, but then, you know, once they try it, you know, they're, they're kind of hooked. So. Hazy IPA started as a thing that nobody wanted, but some brewers had some ideas around how they could make something cool and compelling and then ended up uh, taking a huge chunk of the overall beer market. And it happened because people were passionate about it and saw an opportunity for flavor here. You know, if if brewers don't take those kinds of risks and make beers based on interesting ideas, then you know, what's going to be next. We don't know what's going to be next. And so, you know, I think that's part of the quote unquote innovation pipeline. If you want to, you know, apply a, uh, awful marketing term to it, but, uh, but more importantly, it is just part of that creative process that, that brewers have always engaged in and should always mm-hmm. engage in. Um, you know, but, but what's the, what's the end game? How big do you want to be Bobby? And, uh, you know, when will you know that you've, you guys have really achieved it? <laughs> I don't know how big we want to be. Um, right now, we're we're maxed out uh, for our facility. So, how much beer do you make per year? Uh, last year we made six thousand. Uh, this year we'll probably be close to nine. Um, wow. Yeah, we're just we can't expand unless we you know get another bay now or or move fermenters out or you know we're we're kind of in the process of like we're coming up on a you know. Our, our building lease is coming in a couple of years. So it's kind of like we have to look to the future and, you know, what are we going to do if that comes up? Do we have to, are we going to get a new building and, and build out a whole nother brewery or it's something where we have to look for you. I mean, obviously in the brewing industry, you always have to look forward, you know, where you want to be, how big do you want to get uh, right now? We're just, we're kind of, we're happy where we're at, but you know, we, we wouldn't mind expanding a little more to get, you know, to, to hopefully go into a couple more states um, in the future and get our beer out, you know, a little more, a uh, little more out there in the market. So, I would say we're good. I'm good for now. My, my business partner <laughs> probably wouldn't say the same, but uh, you know, I, I like where we're at. You know, I got a great staff, and um, yeah, the beers we're doing. There's, I mean, we're coming out with some really cool stuff. And the bigger I get, you know, the less probably, you know, inventive, you know, on, on some other beers, it's, it's a little tougher because you're just kind of producing for the market. And I like to, I like to keep it fun there and, and brew different beers and, you know, open a couple more tanks. What's the, what's the creative project that you're working on right now that uh, is most exciting to you? I really like our, our logger, um, our barrel aged logger program that we got going. Barrel aged logger program. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I did send you a, uh, one of them uh, for the magazine, the the dunk the tank. dunk tank, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, you know, we we when we barrel age them, we actually place them in the cooler, so we we cold age them. Um, so we actually kind of keep it like you know the Germans did by putting them in caves, keeping them cold, letting them lager for you know six months to a year, and it just provides this nuance to a lot of those beers. You know, the it's not swelling in and out of the barrel at this point. It's it's kind of getting the it's getting a little bit of the whiskey. Or in other cases, a little bit of the Chardonnay, um, and just kind of adding this note. It also adds a, I think, a great complexity mouthfeel 
to the beers that, you know, if you taste the normal version side by side, it, uh, it just definitely adds, adds great flavor, uh, great body. It's just, I think it's, it's something different. Wood, wood aged lagers, fooder aged lagers, barrel aged lagers. Um, you know, it has definitely been a growing trend over the last few years. Uh, you know, and I, I would say that our responses are mixed. I've had some that have been absolutely uh, mind blowing. Um, I remember tasting a Poetica one up at uh, Hill Farmstead when I was up there in 2018, and just uh, you know, seeing just being able to to, to taste this um, palpable like you know body and, and toothiness that the the lager had, and they do that same kind of thing, punch in into the cold room you know, and, and barrel aging in that kind of, you know, uh, cold temperature kind of environment. Um, you know, fooder lagers, of course, have been taking off. The folks at Threes kind of, uh, you know, have uh, inspired a lot of, of, of that kind of growth. And the folks at Fooder Crafters have been pushing more fooders out there for everybody to, you know, to engage in this. Um, I find it that fun, uh, not necessarily because it makes better lagers, but it makes different lagers. And, um, and oftentimes it helps uh, consumers who want something to feel special and may not want to just drink a Pilsner, um, you know, but they'll, they'll try a food or Pilsner because, you know, that seems like it's special <laughs> food or Pilsner food or putting the word food in front of it is like putting DDH on the end of your IPA, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. And at that point we brought it full, full circle. Um, GD chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, such a compass by raw North star pills. Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard with a cost-effective solution. Set up your account on marketmybrewery.com today. Let SS Brewtech outfit your brew house and gain peace of mind with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button. If you're a pro brewer, consider our new all-access pro subscriptions that combine the magazine's exclusive online content and more. Bobby, if uh, if people want to learn more about Cross Strain, uh, where do they find you, both in real life and uh, on the internet? Sure. Uh, our brewery is located in uh, La Vista, Nebraska. Uh, we have a uh, our crossstrainbrewing.com is our uh, our internet site. We have the Twitter feed. And that's K R O S. Yeah, K R O S. Yes. It's and if you put them together, it's not cross straining brewing. So people thought we were a uh, thought we were a cross strain. Uh, cross-training facility but you got to start the gym in the next day over now <laughs> there Apparently actually is a gym the URL yeah. for it. Oh, <laughs> there is a gym next door to us so um no uh we have a twitter feed we have a uh, instagram uh as well um and our new location is going to be downtown about you know two blocks north of the uh, cws stadium so we'll be down there hopefully in a couple months before uh, cws opens so well, fantastic. It's been um, fantastic to uh, to try and drink more of your beers, and uh, and I've really enjoyed this process, and clearly the, the blind judges at Craft Beer and Brewing have responded as well as those GABF judges have. Um, congratulations to you, and uh, yeah, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Appreciate you having me. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.